Velkommen til Power Lunch. Programmet, hvor vi går i dybden med magt, medier og erhvervslivet og løfter diskussionen til et internationalt perspektiv. Mit navn er Nikolaj Bonen Rossen. Jeg driver til hverdag et PR-bureau med internationalt udsyn og har taget udtrykket Power Lunch med hjem fra The Four Seasons Restaurant på Manhattan, hvor det siden 1979 har været brugt til at beskrive og institutionalisere frokostmøder mellem indflydelsesrige individer. Vi er på restaurant Marshall Hotel Dagneterre, som har givet os lov til at optage denne serie podcast på stedet. Konceptet er Candid Conversation, det vil sige åbenhjertige samtaler over tre retter med, og med hver ret tager vi hul på nye samtaler. Programmet er tilrettelagt af Annette Halstrøm. Velkommen til. Mikhailo Vidonik is the ambassador of Ukraine to Denmark, a diplomatic mission which was established on February 12, 1992. That is at the present time of this recording, almost exactly 30 years ago. And since then, diplomatic and economic ties between Denmark and Ukraine have strengthened with more than 300 Danish companies currently operating in Ukraine in various sectors of the economy, including agriculture and IT, as well as a visa-free entry to Ukraine and direct flights between Copenhagen and Kiev up until COVID-19. However, in 2022, it is evident that COVID-19 is no longer the biggest threat to European stability. The Russia-Ukraine conflict and standoff is. And in hopes of getting a better understanding of this situation, I'm very pleased to welcome Mikhailo Vudojnik for this episode of Power Lunch, set amid the escalating conflict at the Ukrainian borders. Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for taking the time off for seeing us here today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure as well. And I'm pleased also to be here in this wonderful hotel. I know this is a well world-known hotel and also the restaurant itself is very prominent among diplomats and among ambassadors too. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the lunch. What are we having here? So what we're serving here is going to be served uh, fried cutfish. We have it with a pumice puree with some steamed uh, carrots and yellow beets and with a sauce masseau. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Mr. Ambassador, you took time off as well recently to participate in a longer television interview with Danish TV2. There you discussed the outline of the current Ukraine-Russia conflict. You said many interesting things during this interview. Notably, you confirmed the public notion that this is the most tense development Uh, since 2014, where Russia occupied the Crimea Peninsula and engaged in armed conflict in the eastern Ukraine province of Donbass. I'm going to start off by just asking you, in your perspective, what is this new conflict about? Well, first of all, I would like to say that this is not a new conflict. The conflict lasts already for eight years. It started in 2014, as you rightly mentioned, by the occupation of Russia of the Ukrainian uh, peninsula, Crimea, and also their invasion in the eastern part of Ukraine. And uh, I must also say that the current buildup of Russian troops near Ukrainian borders, it's not also something new. The troops are there for almost eight years. So we consider it not something which is rapidly happening near Ukrainian borders. This is something which exists. But what is new about that Russians and and Russian President Putin openly declared its interest and showed to the rest of the world, to the Western world, that uh, he has some demands and uh, that he wants some, I would say, concessions from the Western countries. So what is it that he wants? Concessions? Well, uh, it's difficult to say you should better ask President Putin about that. What What is our assessment? That I think what he wants is to make Ukraine a failed state, to regain control over our country, to stop any democratic developments uh, in the closest neighborhood to Russia and also to show to the world that Russia is a superpower and everybody should respect it. 
and should be feared of, of this conflict. Well, according to the, the, the Russians, at least, this is also your interpretation of their narrative, as you told TV2. Um, the flirtation, so to speak, with NATO poses, uh, between Ukraine and NATO, poses a regional challenge to Russian interest, and Russia deems the security threat if military presence in Ukraine can enable, for example, NATO to make a strike against Moscow. Why, uh, why is that not in line with realities as seen as by Ukraine? I think the paradox of the situation is a little bit different from what you're saying. It's not that NATO is threatening Russia, it's totally vice versa. It's Russia's aggressive policy makes its, first of all, neighboring countries strive to become full-fledged member of NATO. And the reason for that is quite simple. In case of Ukraine, we want to protect our territory, our sovereignty. We learned lessons from 2014 when Russia occupied our territory, when Russia invaded eastern part of Ukraine, when Russian troops started shelling Ukrainian positions. All these things naturally brings us to the idea that uh, we should protect ourselves. And then we start, started, let's say, assessing what are the possibilities for that. And, and so we ended up with the decision that the best solution to protect our territory is to become full-fledged member of NATO. This is the only reason we are trying to become, uh, to, to receive this membership. In so there is not a threat uh, to Moscow in Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. That is what you essentially are saying there. Look, in our assessment, I mean, if speaking about the general situation in the world, if Russia would not invade Ukraine, if Russia would offer cooperation and friendship to NATO allies at least, if Russia would not cause these intimidations, these threats uh, to any other countries which are neighbors to Russia, then the dialogue would be quite different. But Russia chose this path. They are threatening their neighbors. They are trying to regain control. That actually makes natural decision, natural choice of its neighboring country to try to join NATO uh, group, let's say, of allies. Because this is, in our assessment, this is the only thing which can preserve and prevent any potential probes or attempts from Russia to take control over the neighboring countries. So this is our assessment. As I understand it also, consulting with a notable Russia expert on, on the relation of the situations, a key motive behind Russia's um, uh, military pressure in Ukraine right now is the agreement reached with the Minsk II Treaty in 2015, which was approved by Germany and France and the UN General Assembly. And for the uninitiated listeners, I should mention that the Minsk Protocol is an agreement which sought to end the war in the Donbas region of Ukraine. It was written in 2014, I believe it was, by the Trilateral Contact Group on Ukraine, and that consists of Ukraine, the Russian Federation, and OSCE. And the question here is, will Ukraine you know, live up to it and give Donbass that uh, far-reaching autonomy within Ukraine, as was in that agreement? If you read this agreement, you will find a lot of interesting things there. The first option is that the agreement itself should, uh, should cease its existence by 2015. So, both, so let's say the sides which signed this agreement should implement it in a year period. So, so from the point of view of, of, uh, of law, let's say the agreement expired already. But we fully understand that there are no other, at this time, no other options. The agreement itself is not ideal for us, and there are lots of things and, uh, which we disagree with. But agreement is there, and this is what our president recently also emphasized several times, that Ukraine will implement it. But the problem is that uh, Russia differently reads this agreement comparing to the rest of the world. And, and that's the main problem, because since the last meeting of the leaders of Normandy Format in 2019 in Paris, they have agreed on several things which Ukraine and Russia should implement, starting from 
implementing the ceasefire regime, also opening up new checking points near the conflict line, exchange of the political prisoners and other uh, prisoners who are right now yeah, in Russian prisons, etc. And all these demands from the Ukrainian side have been implemented. We have constructed several checking points. We have sent the, our intents to give back all the prisoners that Russia wanted to, to have an exchange. We also ordered our uh, soldiers to stop any potential shelling. And the only thing they can do is, you know, to shell in reply if they have been attacked by uh, by those from the other side of the conflict. Okay, so they can only respond to fire. They can only respond, which is natural, and uh, they are clear with that. I mean, if there is a threat to their lives, they definitely should, uh, yeah, protect and, themselves. And in, in the interview with the TV2, you said as well that if Russian troops would uh, cross the border, Ukrainians are ready to take to weapons and defend your country to, quote-unquote, the last bullet. You cite polls mentioning that one-third of Ukraine's citizens are willing to relocate to the front and to fight the aggressor. And this notion is very much also underpinned by recent footage released uh, showing how civilians uh, are being uh, giving crash courses in, uh, in, in combat trading and so forth. Well, what is the status of your mobilization at this moment? Well, look, I mean, uh, this is quite clear that we have to protect our territory and we will do that. We have no other country or land to, you know, to escape or to flee uh, from our country. So this is the only thing what we can do is to protect our families, our homes and to resist as much as possible. So in case of any further escalation or uh, open in, in invasion from the Russian uh, troops, definitely we will shoot back and protect our territory. So it goes without saying. But uh, at the same time, however, I read recently that Poland is preparing to receive up to uh, one million uh, refugees in case of a full-scale uh, Russian uh, invasion. And according to my own sources in Kiev, I've spoken also with some Danish employers there, there are people moving actually right now closer to the European borders of uh, Ukraine uh, in case of a Russian invasion, um, and not the Russian border, so to speak. And you mentioned as well in the interview with TV2 your own you know, personal uh, family concerns because you have a son soon reaching military age, uh, and uh, you also, also on a personal level starting to worry about this. So my understanding is that in general there's a growing concern and, and perhaps even fear in the population of a Russian invasion. How do you respond to that? Look, I mean, I think the behavior of people is very natural and even recently during the visit of my foreign minister to Denmark he also which was last week which yeah. was last week on the 26th and 27th of January yeah. he also mentioned that the let's say the speed of selling air tickets and the speed of selling weapon in the guns uh, sh stores is almost you know growing uh, so fast and with the same level so it means that of course there are families who are in fear of any potential escalation and think how to protect their relatives their parents kids so some of them are buying tickets and uh, sending people to turkey to egypt to to let's say some some other countries so that they could stay there for a while and see what are the developments in, in Ukraine. And the others are preparing uh, to protect their own homes and houses, so they are buying guns, uh, hunting weapon or whatever they can buy, uh, of course, following all the permissions, etc., and, and preparing for the worst. But what I would like to stress here, that the main idea behind all these developments in Ukraine is that first Ukraine is prepared. Ukraine is no longer a weak country as we were in 2014. And Ukraine is prepared to give as strong as possible resistance to any potential Russian invasion. This is issue number one. The second thing is that what we are striving to do is to avoid any panic in the society. And we would like, and what the authorities in Ukraine are doing, is showing to the population that you should rely on your army. You should not buy all these, you know, uh, media things and threats and intimidations which comes from 
Russia and you should not immediately go you know to the bank withdraw cash or, or do anything which will negatively affect your keep calm and carry on yeah so this is the the major thing because I mean as I said those troops are near Ukrainian borders for eight years so there are no let's say more troops currently who could you know uh, create this bigger threat as they are or as they were for example even last spring you you might also remember that suddenly they started planning exercises near Ukrainian border and there was also a kind of an escalation so, so is the threat overrated by media currently I mean it is being portrayed as a new development I realize and I respect that the situation has been ongoing since 2014 if you look at the level of diplomatic let's say pressure and presence of the European and American leaders on the territory of Ukraine of course there are new developments in the country so this is you cannot compare it let's to the situation even half a year ago or, or years ago but the situation with the Russian army is still the same so as I said we live in the times of war for eight years so our let's say uh, response to this is stay calm be prepared of course observe the situation but don't panic because this is also in the interest of Russia I mean to create this panic to disrupt stand normal let's say economic life of the country they already let's be honest succeeded in some attempts our financial market started slowly you know showing that some of the investors are still frightened and they're trying you know to escape or to withdraw from Ukraine and uh, our national bank started uh, unfortunately for us selling our golden reserves in order to keep uh, let's say the stability of the Ukrainian currency because of this uh, panic but I think this time we managed to let's say again to stabilize the situation it's not over it is still in the process and next week we will receive again several prominent leaders from European countries like uh, Councillor Scholz or President Macron. They are planning to visit Ukraine to show solidarity with Ukrainian people. So I think, uh, yeah, this time the situation intense, but still under control. I was just about to ask there as well, um, concerning the whole financial economic um, uh, situation, the Danish-Ukrainian ties, they're plentiful. And as I mentioned in my introduction, data supplied by your embassy in Denmark states that there are more than 300 Danish companies uh, currently active in Ukraine. My own PR agency has had Ukrainian uh, clients here in Denmark, and I myself had small investments in Ukraine-based businesses. And I visited your country, uh, by the way, a couple of times as well. But in, in light of this situation, is it safe to do business with Ukraine at the moment? Can Danish businesses feel safe trading with Ukrainian vendors and vice versa? Look, I may say a lot of positive things about my country, but business people are very pragmatic. And here the only uh, response to your question will be just look at figures of our trade and look at the figures of the interest which Danish companies are showing towards Ukraine. Last year it was a COVID one, but still we have more than 35% increase in our trade turnover. 35? 35%. So it's incredibly high and I'm very happy that even if you look at both Ukrainian expert but also Danish export to Ukraine, they were growing in parallel. Of course, we are happy because we have a positive saldo, meaning that we export more than, than the Danish companies to Ukraine. But still, the trade itself shows that there is a confidence in the future and Danish companies are there. And we receive a lot of calls even recently from the companies asking, can you help us please find a Ukrainian producer of furniture? Can you please find a producer of textile or, or clothes? We recently had a very good conversation with Bestseller Group. They are quite big in Denmark, you know uh, them, and they are also trying to find producers in Ukraine. The major signal from them is that, look, COVID influenced the natural chains of, let's say, delivering goods. China is becoming more expensive and a little bit far away from Denmark. Ukraine is very close. Ukraine is just, you know, one day by truck and you will be in Berlin or you can reach Denmark. 
It's only two hours by airplane, so businessmen don't waste a lot of efforts and time to go to Kyiv to have, let's say, bilateral talks with local businessmen and return back home. So, I mean, from all these perspectives, Ukraine is becoming closer and closer partner. And in general, if you look at our trade with the EU in, back in 2014, before Russian invasion, Russia was number one trade partner of Ukraine. Right now, European Union has become trade partner number one of Ukraine with the overwhelmingly, let's say, bigger trade volume comparing to what we have with Russia. So it means that all Ukrainian companies also started reorienting themselves towards European Union. So I think this is yeah, a very uh, pragmatic approach and uh, business is there and business is calling us and, and asking us for support and that's very positive. And I personally as well, I should note, heard uh, nothing but the best and I only personally only had nothing but the best of experience in dealings uh, with Ukraine. What I'm merely reminding is uh, as well, um, regardless of how pragmatic uh, business people are, they are also at the end of the day people. Uh, with the same fears and concerns as so many other people. And I want also to uh, remind you there that the Ukrainian president and the government says that there is no immediate risk of a Russian invasion, but the U.S. says the opposite. How do you explain this discrepancy? We don't have any discrepancy. We have just uh, sober assessments of the situation. But does the U.S. then know something that Ukraine doesn't, or vice versa? Uh, no, we all, on a daily basis, I may assure you, exchange with our data, intelligence data, with our American partners as well as EU partners. So there is, there are no secrets uh, from us, and they also assess the situation. But as our president said, that comparing to, for example, Americans, we don't have any other country to, you know, to flee. I mean, this is the only way we, we should protect ourselves by just, you know, saying openly that uh, we should prepare for the worst, but in any case, stay calm and react accordingly, not to create panic, because this has a negative implication on the on the situation inside Ukraine. Is the media narrative there screwed, in your opinion, here in the West as well? Well, media is, uh, yes, you're right, right. I mean, media is media. They always want, uh, you know, to show some kind of sensation or, or, you know, to draw attention of the readers, which is their work and which is a normal thing. But uh, we should rely not only on the media, but on many different resources uh, in our assessment of the situation. And that's what we are doing, and that's actually what our president also told to President Biden during his recent phone conversation. So the alternative there to media is also to trust the sources coming out directly, the public communication there from your government on that? First and uh, foremost, for the Ukrainian population, yeah, we should follow, I would say, uh, example maybe of the Danish people. In many cases, I can see the Danes have a trust to your government and uh, they are trying, you know, to follow the recommendations of the government. So this is something which we want to also have in Ukraine. And that's... Our vision, I mean, the president uh, always try to explain to the population that please trust us. Uh, we will do whatever we can in order to protect you. And this is the, the major important thing for us. I mean, not to panic, to stay and to continue life, continue doing business, because uh, before this recent escalation at the end of 2022 Ukraine showed the the highest figures in its economic development I mean we had the highest GDP uh, since our independence and uh, the highest uh, golden reserves were also since our independence so I mean we are quite uh, strong and moving forward One of the things that are being discussed in Western media most recently is that the U.S. intelligence community has recently stated that Russia would plan to stage video footage of Ukrainian aggression as an excuse uh, to engage militarily. Recent satellite footage as well, published in media, shows the natural massive buildup of troops. Obviously, one should always take things with a grain of salt, but how have you reacted to those uh, uh, recent reports uh, from the Ukrainian government side? Are you as worried as the West uh, is to this, uh, uh, these new informations? Of course we are worried and we pay a lot of attention to the developments uh, 
on our occupied territories or near, near the Ukrainian borders, this is natural. And as I said, we are exchanging on a daily basis with the intelligence data with our partners. And one of the developments which uh, you mentioned, uh, we also do not exclude. I mean, we know Russians, we know their tricky approaches, and we know their propaganda machine is working. So uh, we are always trying to to be prepared for any different scenario or any different, you know, developments. How is it working, uh, the propaganda machine, uh, that is? In, in, here in the West, I would say that we are fairly skeptical and critical of what comes out of Moscow. How do you see it work here? Is it in a regional context in Ukraine with Belarus uh, and the former Soviet states, or are you also saying that it works as it works here in Western Europe? I mean, the Russians were always very professional in, in this propaganda, and uh, they were, you know, if you can, let's say, uh, follow all the news and a lot of developments since 2014, you will see a lot of fake news coming from them. And, uh, uh, and unfortunately, they are quite successful in this approach. What uh, our government did and the, the president as well, we finally uh, stopped any Russian media, uh, transmission of any Russian media on the territory of Ukraine, as well as uh, there are sanctions against Russian social media, like uh, Vkontakte and, and others. That's the Russian Facebook, right? Yeah, it's Russian Facebook, so to say, yeah. So, of course, we are trying to, to, you know, to disconnect Ukraine from any potential source of information which Russia may use in order, you know, to interfere to influence Ukrainians and uh, to, you know, to continue their narratives about the, the conflict, about the situation in Ukraine, about the occupation of Crimea, etc. But would you agree that they aren't as successful here in the West as they may be uh, regionally with, uh, for example, on the borders uh, of uh, Ukraine and so forth? Do you see the Russian narrative uh, winning momentum here in the West? I mean, personally, I don't see it really uh, happening in West media because there's so much uh, moral backing and support for Ukraine, very much skepticism and, uh, and criticism against Russia. Uh, but I obviously don't know the I, situation. Well, my personal opinion, I also share uh, your view, uh, view on that. Uh, I also think that uh, even with this recent escalation, finally also European politicians understood that what's happening in Ukraine, it's not only about Ukraine's uh, territory, it's about the security of the whole continent. And if uh, the invasion will uh, take place, the new, let's say, uh, invasion into Ukraine, it will definitely have uh, negative repercussions for the whole Europe. So that's your key point as well, that the stability of Ukraine is not just about stability of the Ukraine, okay. it's about the stability of the entire continent. It's about the stability of the entire continent first. It's about the... Because if it can happen to you, it can happen to every one of us. Of course. I mean, you can even, if you wish, you can approach the Lithuanian ambassador, for example. They are very much concerned about the developments uh, in Ukraine, but also about, let's say, the developments in Belarus, because they are in a close neighborhood and they are afraid of any potential escalation also near their border. You all remember this migration issue. I mean, that they were, you know... Uh, putting so many, let's say, people onto the borderline and, you know, pushing them, let's say, to cross the border with Poland, with Lithuania. So uh, we all know what Russians can do, and that is a big concern for not just for Ukraine, but I would say for the whole European continent. But in general, again, we should talk about the, the geopolitical fight between the democratic, between the democracies, let's say, and the authoritarian regimes. So this is uh, more than just about Ukraine. This is about the future development of the world, in my opinion. You mentioned in the interview with TV2 that uh, Ukraine was NATO neutral, so to speak, up until 2014. And in hopes that, you know, guarantees of protection for the major nuclear powers was upheld following your nuclear reductions. And it should be here be mentioned that up until the 90s, Ukraine was the world's third largest uh, nuclear capability following uh, US and Russia. Now you're NATO positive and mentioned to TV2 as well that in the future you will quote-unquote definitely achieve that membership. What stands in the way currently in your perspective? 
I mean, uh, you're right. I mean, the assessment is quite, very clear. And I would say that uh, this is because of Putin's uh, aggressive policy. Ukrainians started demanding from the government uh, to reorient the country and uh, to increase our speed towards becoming a member of NATO. If you look at the level of support of, let's say, uh, NATO membership among the Ukrainian population back in 2013, for example, before Maidan, before the occupation of Crimea, and right now you will see totally different figures. Back then, uh, I would say that approximately 30-35% of the population, and also they were divided. I mean, the western part of Ukraine were more, uh, let's say, naturally closer to, to become uh, member of NATO, then the, the eastern, uh, let's say, part of Ukraine, where uh, people were always having closer relations with Russia. I mean, because they were in a region which borders Russia, and it's natural that they had a lot of trade with Russians. But right now you would see that the majority of Ukrainians, despite the regions, are already in favor of becoming a member of NATO. So there is a huge move towards uh, this, the, these changes yeah, in the population's mind that uh, NATO is an ally and not an enemy for us. So for the main course, we're serving you fried uh, quail breast. You have it with a caramelized onion puree. You have it with some radicchio uh, salad and also in deep. And then we have it with a sauce apothea. Thank you very much. I would like to just note too that most analysis and most indications are, however, that Ukraine will maybe not become a member of NATO, regardless of all the rhetoric in, in the West. And uh, I don't know if you know this yet, Mr. Ambassador, I can tell you just hours ago, uh, the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, he accepted the job proposal from uh, the Norwegian Central Bank, uh, commencing September 2022, at least that's what uh, the preliminary reports are. Why one must assume that all his comments uh, made by him should be taken perhaps a bit lightly with a grain of salt, so to speak. Uh, how, if, if not through NATO, how will Ukraine take care of its own security going forward? We should do both. We should do our homework. In order to become a member of NATO, of course, there are lots of let's say, criteria which the potential candidate should fulfill, and we fully understand this. So uh, what we see and what is our plan, let's say. We would and we will continue the reform of our uh, armed forces. We will do our best in order you know, to implement all the criteria which NATO has in order uh, that we could join it in the future one day. I remember a lot of skeptical discussions about the visa-free regime with Ukraine back in the 2000, I think, seven or six. Uh, it was, I was a little bit younger as a diplomat, and I remember the rhetorics of Germans, for example, that it will never happen because Ukraine will become a new, let's say, source of migrants towards EU, that you will abuse with this visa-free regime, etc. But right now, everybody is, uh, you know, uh, happy that uh, Ukraine got this. There are no, let's say, any single case that Ukraine want to misuse this. There is a big demand for Ukrainian labor in the EU market, including Denmark. So I wouldn't be, you know, that strict saying that Ukraine will never become a NATO member. And this is uh, how we see the developments. Well, Indeed, uh, um, the, the visa-free regime have benefited both Ukraine and, and vice versa. Danes can also travel uh, to Ukraine uh, visa-free, and uh, it has worked uh, fantastic. And you're, nobody, I believe, doubts the development of Ukraine over the, the past couple of decades, even. But concerning your stability and your situation, which was really also what the question was about. I remember you mentioned to TV2 that Ukraine is a lot stronger now than it was in 2014. You mentioned it initially as well. And in the interview you made there, you highlighted your country's expertise in partisan warfare and the fact that it's, it's, it's not a profitable matter to invade another country. And you, you even said that, you know, in case of a full-scale invasion, it would be very difficult to control Ukraine. However, I just want to run, you know, some comparison numbers to you that I obtained from a Financial Times article the other day. They cite uh, Global Firepower Index for 2021 and Politico. So, active personnel, Ukraine, 
255,000 uh, troops, Russia, 1 million, roughly. Fighter and attack aircraft, Ukraine, 67, Russia, 1,531. Attack helicopters, 34, Russia, 538. Smaller warships, Ukraine, 13, Russia, 214. The only parameter where you reach this half of Russia's strength is towed artillery, armored vehicles, and reserve personnel. Would this be enough to keep enemies at the gates? Look, once again, when I mentioned in my last interview, which you're referring to, is that uh, you're right. I mean, they can start invasion. They can even succeed in moving deeper into our territory. But as I said, they will face a lot of resistance from Ukrainian population. And if you're comparing, let's say, the, the powers of our armies, then I would give you another example. I think some of uh, our let's say listeners remember the Chechen war, the war in Chechnya, when a big power like Russia was trying you know, to, so to say, to conquer small Chechnya on their own territory. And you all remember how many even years it took for them to do that with such a small, let's say, piece. And of they never reality. succeeded in Finland, for example. And they never succeeded in Finland. Yeah, the history teaches us that. So my assessment of the situation is that, of course, from the Ukrainian point of view, we would like to avoid as much as possible this uh, scenario of, of open escalation and open war with Russia, because it will not end up in Ukraine and there will be just big, you know, uh, destruction of, all, of everything and big casualties on, on both sides. In my opinion, if Putin finally decides to invade, this will be the uh, beginning of the end of his regime in Russia. One thing is, you know, to tell to the media that uh, Ukraine is full of fascists and uh, to create an enemy from Ukraine for your local population. Another thing is to send letters to the parents that your son or your daughter has been killed in war with Ukraine and to return them, you know, coffins of, with bodies. And then it's natural that Russian parents would ask, what is the reason for this war? What are we fighting for? We were always, so to say, brothers. We had very similar mentalities, a lot of similar things with regards to our culture. And suddenly Russia started this war. So in my opinion, this is also a big risk that local Russian populations, including local Russian political elite, will start behaving in a different way uh, with regards to Putin's regime and his closest allies. And I don't exclude that if such scenario will, happens, let's say, then it will end up with the end of Putin being in the top of the country. Well, indeed, history has taught us many things. I remember in the interview you said there, if you want peace, you need to prepare for war. It's, I don't know which wise man you quoted uh, there, but uh, I come to think of uh, another perspective really uh, on that matter. That is that we are, uh, in fact, uh, choked with news and starved of history. I don't remember who. It was an American industrialist that at one point said that. But we are choked with news at the moment. We are starved of history. And we have a habit of not reminding ourselves what history has taught us. And I think that's worth keeping in mind as well in your defense of uh, the whole situation there concerning a potential Russian invasion and how you will be able or not be able or able to fend off uh, any uh, Russian invasion there. I remember in that uh, TV interview, you said that you expect military support from NATO countries in case of a Russian invasion, but this, despite the lack of an actual NATO membership. However, and you realize obviously the difference, as you said as well, but asking that if the West does not send troops, then perhaps they'd send uh, equipment and weapons instead. Germany did so recently in the form of 5,000 helmets, a move that prompted ridicule. they did not. They <laughs> just sent the helmets, they not, just, not weapons. No, no, exactly. Uh, the 5,000 helmets there, and move that obviously prompted ridicule uh, from Kievan political commentators everywhere. 
I've read one tweet here that said that obviously the plan is to have 5,000 Ukrainian soldiers run across the border and headbutt Russian troops stationed uh, there. Uh, wrote, I think it was Marina Meisband. She's a Ukrainian board writer and former politician on Twitter. And the hashtag Helmet, uh, the German word for helmet, suddenly also started uh, trending. Obviously, it has been seen as an insult from Germany, but why is Germany reacting in, in this way? Why are not taking the full extent of the responsibility that you expect from them? As I said, I mean, uh, even replying to your previous questions with regards what Ukraine can do, I mean, as a, one thing is, of course, to prepare our own army for, let's say, implementing the criteria necessary to become a member of NATO. And the second, of course, thing what we are doing is to increase our defense capability. Uh, so we will do both. We will increase our defense capability and we will continue reforming our armed forces, which would, you know, at the end meet the criteria necessary to join NATO. And here, just recently, our president also uh, came up with the initiative and he signed the decree saying that we will increase the quantity of our army by 100,000 uh, people more. So you mentioned like 250 thousands is a regular army of Ukraine, so we will have in the coming years an increase of uh, by uh, 100,000 uh, Is that more. through conscription or is it through uh, increasement of the professional army? Or First of all, increase for the professional army, yeah. And that's also when you were mentioning that we have only 250,000 of soldiers, I will give you another figure that... Uh, uh, we have approximately more than 350,000 of people who already have a battlefield experience while being, you know, on the in the eastern part of Ukraine, protecting Ukraine. So we have a lot of reserves, so to say, reserves. Yeah, you have a reserve army yes. of, I believe, a million yes, uh, troops. Half, half a million, yeah, at, at least. So. We have people who are ready to protect Ukraine. But once again, we want to avoid as much as possible this scenario of open in, in, invasion because all understood that it will only bring suffer and casualties and, and this destruction to our territory. Returning back to the Germany, I mean, of course, it's a frustration story with them. And we are open with our partners. We value a lot of efforts which uh, personally Chancellor Mer Merkel did and uh, the German government did uh, to help Ukraine to resolve this uh, conflict with Russia. But on the other hand, we are also open with our partners saying that, look, such an approach negatively implicates and, has, and doesn't help to resolve. So what, what do you need to, to resolve that situation? What is it that you would expect from a country like Germany or Denmark for that matter? We already submitted the list of our needs. And as you know, some of our allies already replied and we are receiving uh, javelins, for example, from the United States. Uh, recently, Great Britain delivered some uh, system also to Ukraine, uh, anti-tank system, or how to say. Other countries like Estonia, Czech, Czech uh, Republic, the, the Poland also, they declared and they are ready to submit some kind of weapon. So this is something which we are working on already with our partners. We also are ready to buy things from our partners and also we are working with Denmark on various issues. Maybe it's a little bit yeah, sensitive and I wouldn't, let's say, elaborate on that that much because it's about our defense, but be sure that we have a lot of friends who are ready to help, and they are continuing doing that. And it's an interesting day that uh, you and I meet today, uh, Mr. Ambassador, uh, because being the 4th of February, uh, today there was uh, a change in uh, the Danish government. We have a new uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, now former Minister of Taxation, so he will uh, relieve um, Trine Bramsen of her duties, and Morten Bullskog will now be in charge. What would be the message from you and Ukraine to him ascending to the post of Minister of Defense? Look, we appreciate very much what uh, Trini Bramson did for Ukraine and we appreciate very much her recent visit to Ukraine. We have a very big project with Denmark right now on uh, shipbuilding and we're uh, continuing working on that. Also, as I said, we have uh, Danish advisors who are working with our Ministry of Defense. We have a lot of Danish support 
We have a demining uh, center in Ukraine, which is you know functioning also with the assistance of, of Denmark. So we have plenty of things where we cooperate. I have also uh, personally approached several Danish producers of uh, weapon or weapon-related, let's say, technologies with the offer, let's say, to establish cooperation with Ukraine, and they are very positive. One of them, you can even perhaps you know, a company named Weibel. We bought radars from them, and there is. Is that the same as Cherma? Something like that? Uh, it's not the same. They are separate companies, yeah. But but they are producing yeah uh, very professional radars, which are needed for us, including let's say to testing our uh, rockets, our uh, ammunition, etc. So. We have plenty of things where we cooperate already with Denmark, and we continue to doing things like that. And with regard to the changes in your government, the only thing I would say is for me clear that your prime minister was very open with my minister saying that Denmark is on our side, that Denmark condemns any aggressive policy of Russia and Denmark will do its best in order to help Ukraine protect and restore its territorial integrity. This is the, the strongest message we received from your head of government and I think that under her leadership the new Minister of Defense will also uh, look at Ukraine and will also we will try to find also and to continue these uh, relations which we had with his predecessor, with Trini Bramson. Okay. Well, that sounds that sounds reasonable. But I, I would expect as well that you would expect from the new Minister of Defense and Denmark in general that it is not just about words, but that they're also backed up with actions. So, uh, one thing is uh, with the, the the weapon systems, but what about? soldiers in case of an invasion, boots on the ground? I mean, as I said, I mean, once again, uh, we are f fully aware that Ukraine at this stage, we are not a member of NATO, so there are no obligations on NATO behalf, let's say, to send troops to the territory of Ukraine. And with this, uh, let's say, message, uh, what we are trying to do is we are trying to, let's say, to ask our partners, if you can send troops, please help us to increase our defense capability, including by sending weapons uh, of a defensive character, which we need in order to protect. Our main goal is here, you know, to increase our defense capability to such a level that Russia would think twice before, let's say, taking the decision to invade. This is very clear. Russia, in our opinion, respects only those who are strong enough, and uh, Russia only respects this power, this strength, and that's what we are trying to achieve by cooperating with our partners, by asking them uh, to help us to increase our defense capability. We have no intention to attack Russia, we have no intention to start any operation in the eastern part of Ukraine to invade these temporary occupied territories or to return them back by the military means. No way, because there are Ukrainians who live there and we will never shoot at our people. That, that's crystally clear. So for the dessert, we're serving you some coulis of berries. You had a bit of vanilla ice cream and then with a foam based on the buttermilk and some lemon verbena at the top. Enjoy. Thank you very much. You, you've stated that you have invited your nation partners to engage on three levels of sanctions against Russia in an urge not to repeat a 2014. That's the worst case scenario, and we don't want that. One, political sanctions. Two, economic sanctions against individuals or sectors. And third, military to increase your defense capabilities. And uh, I believe as well that your point is that the more powerful sanction tools may bring Russia to the negotiation table. But again, you say as well to me here that Russia only understands one thing, and that's power and strength. How does that uh, uh, align really with sanction? Are sanctions, power and strength uh, enough for Russia? I mean, once again, I, I would like to remind our listeners and viewers that sanctions are not the tool in the hands of the EU to punish Russia. Sanctions is a tool to return them to the table of negotiations and to return them to the general idea to respect international rule of law and to respect other countries' sovereign right to choose whatever path they want, whatever developments they, they want, whatever partners they want uh, to cooperate with. 
So here, sanctions is really a very strong and powerful tool in the hands of our European and uh, American uh, partners, which we may use in order to deter Russia from any potential escalation or from any desire to invade Ukraine. And uh, this is something which also we are trying also to explain to our partners that, look, unfortunately, back in 2014, we failed. Uh, there was no harsh reaction on, on behalf of uh, the EU leaders, in our opinion, and America, which uh, could stop Russia from occupying the territory and starting uh, invasion yeah, onto the, uh, the eastern part of Ukraine. So this time we do not want to repeat the same, let's say, mistake. And that is why we are, when we are talking to our partners, we are saying, look, be prepared for any potential developments, even for the worst scenario. And you should signal right now, immediately at this stage, that Russia should know what kind of punishment it, it might expect if, if they decide to invade. So this is a clear message, and I think it works. And uh, it's not about that Russians get used to live with sanctions or Russians don't care. Believe me, they care for very simple explanation. When the, the first sanctions were imposed on Russia, if you were looking a little bit yeah, about, uh, into the development of economic, let's say, uh, situation in Russia, you would see that the exchange rate of Russian ruble dramatically uh, was, uh, you know, uh, depreciated because of the sanctions which have been imposed. That means that Russians started becoming, let's say, poorer because of the stupid uh, policy which uh, their regime, the Putin, Putin regime, started implementing towards Ukraine. So this is a very simple explanation. And that is happening right now as well in, uh, in Russia. There that is, is uh, happening, in, yeah. The, the ruble is also losing its power. and uh, There's enormous uh, pressure on uh, uh, the ruble at the moment and Russian businesses. I mean, once again, we want to explain to our Russian people that Ukraine fully understands that Russia is our neighbor. And I think all of us wants to have good relations with neighbors or whoever they are. But based on the very simple thing that everybody should respect the rules, everybody should respect each other, and everybody should build these relations based on really, I mean, these normal, standard, understandable principles. But if one country decides to invade another country, decides to occupy its territory, decides to start, let's say, shelling on the population of your country, please don't expect that everybody will be polite and everybody will be open to you and everybody would respect you in this case. So this is a very simple thing. So if Russia has real intention to return to the normal life, which would definitely benefit their people, first of all, not just Europeans or other world, but first of all, their own population. Then we are open for this dialogue. I mean, our president is open uh, for the dialogue with President Putin. Our president initiated several times that please uh, sit on the table and let's talk about how to resolve this conflict. Because every day we receive bad news from the conflict zone that one or two soldiers of Ukraine are dead, are killed. So this is maybe for other countries, including Danes, it's something far away from, from your territory, from something reality, yeah. Yeah, from a daily reality which you maybe forget about that. But us, we live always with this, not to say fear, but with this kind of, a, you know, something is hanging about you and you cannot be relaxed, you cannot plan anything. Democrat sort, so to speak. So, so, well, maybe so to speak, but it's a little bit different what, what you're trying to compare. But something which does not allow you to enjoy life at full and to plan to build something, you know, to create something, to invest for a longer period of time because there is always this fear that something might happen because the, the, there is war in the eastern part of Ukraine, near your border. There is part of the territory which have been occupied. So this is something which we would like to finish as soon as possible. And we are open to Russia. Please sit on the table of negotiations and let's find the solution, but not demand from us any concessions. Which we will... And again, you are, you are neighboring countries. You have been brothering countries for many, many years, and, uh, and tensions decrease and they, uh, they rise. Is this an expression of a, a desire from uh, Russia to return to some sort of uh, 
uh, imperialist states, so to speak, in, in expanding their interest. Is there a, what is your analysis of that? Is there a desire within the Russian community to return to the great mother Russia, so to speak, of the height of the Soviet Union, or why is this aggression happening? In our opinion, I might have here two answers. The first one that successful Ukraine causes a lot of problem for uh, the regime of Putin, because one day Russian population may ask, look, Ukraine succeeded, they have democratic society, they have freedom of media, they have freedom of uh, political parties, they are uh, traveling uh, without any visas to Europe, they can enjoy life, they cooperate with Europeans. I mean, why don't we do that? I mean, if w w they used to say that we are very close, uh, I mean, as, uh, as people, why cannot we live this way? So I think one of the answer to your question would be that Ukraine causes a threat to the basement of, of Putin regime because if you look his at ideology, Russia, his... this is this, this is ideology. This is something which uh, Russia continues starting from maybe Russian Empire or starting from Soviet Union to create an enemy somewhere outside the country and to blame. Uh, for whatever is happening in your country, that you don't have access to your own gas. If you go deeper into Russia, you would see that there are no ways that uh, people are not connected uh, to the gas. They, they still are burning wood or whatever in order you know, to have heat in their homes. The level of salaries are not uh, high enough. So, I mean, they have a lot of problems inside but, but, the country. But following the Revolution of Dignity, also known as the Maidan Revolution in 2013 to 2014, uh, some critics say that the living standards of average Ukrainians are still behind uh, average uh, uh, Russians and in Belarus as well. What's the explanation to that? The explanation is simple. I mean, the most fundamental thing which we are trying to build our country on is these values which we as ukrainians feel we are europeans some people sometimes ask me do you would you like to join uh, europe or whatever i said no i don't like to join because we are europe i mean why, why should i join something which is already on my territory you are europeans we are europeans and this is i mean if you go you mentioned you have your investments, but if you go right now to Kyiv, you would or, or to other cities, you would see the same young people as here in Denmark wearing the same brands, using the same uh, iPhones or, or some other yeah, things, uh, enjoying the same cuisine, watching the same films. I mean, we are similar to your people. I mean, I don't see any difference except language, perhaps, yeah, or, or some cultural things which just in reach uh, so you are a lot more countries. leaning towards Europe and the towards the West yeah. than you are this to Russia. is also one uh, big answer to the question that uh, Ukraine still cannot become member of NATO or EU and in my opinion this is a big mistake of the EU leaders not allowing us or not giving us this uh, clear signal that one day you may become when you fulfill the necessary criteria because we deeply inside we are Europeans and with your, let's say, support or with less support which EU leaders can give us, we will in any case develop and move our country towards the European uh, way of life. And this is, yeah, the only thing we have. But if Ukraine wants to ultimately become 100% independent of Russian influence, then why not, for example, close the, 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 the gas pipeline through Ukraine? Uh, I mean, as long as Ukraine is dependent on uh, the revenues of that pipeline, it can never truly be 100% uh, independent of Russia, or can it? Look, gas is real uh, big weapon in the hands of Russia, and actually this is one of the, in my assessment, one of the reasons why some of the European countries are not that strong in their condemnation of Russia's behavior uh, in Ukraine, because they are also dependent on Russian gas, and they are afraid that Russia would suddenly stop supplying gas to their uh, people and then the, they, their population would demand a change of the government in their own country, let's say, because of this policy. So gas is a big tool in the hands of Russia and this is our joint, let's say, task to decrease as much as possible the dependence on Russia, of Europe, including Ukraine, from Russian gas. And that is why we were from the very beginning against the construction of Nord Stream 2. That is why we were addressing Germans, first of all, but also other countries, including Denmark, that please don't allow this project be implemented because 
you will create another tool of influence for Putin. And recent increase in the gas prices shows it quite perfectly that uh, if Russia wants, they can easily you know, press a lot of European uh, governments with, the, with those uh, prices for the gas. So this is a big issue for Ukraine as well. But what we are doing, we are trying to decrease the consumption of gas by, let's say, increasing our energy efficiency policies. Also with the assistance of Denmark, we have a separate project with you. Also, uh, by the way, in February, uh, one of the Danish companies will start implementing a big project on isolating the multi-store buildings in Ukraine. They will be co-financed by European Investment Bank and European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. So the plan is to, uh, let's say, to warm up or to isolate uh, the, the walls of 1,000 big multi-store buildings in Ukraine and to decrease consumption of heat. Another thing which we are developing is our own production of gas. We have a lot of, uh, let's say, deposits of gas. And what we are doing, we are trying to attract more investments into the local production of gas so that we could be more, in the, first of all, independent from Russia. But second, what is also important to mention, we, we have so much gas in our deposits that we can easily export it in the future if we are able to produce it to the European market. So we will be, again, a competitor to Russia. It will be a win-win situation for our European partners because there will be more supplier of gas, let's say, to Europe. So uh, Ukraine, independent of Russian uh, influence completely, will be uh, equal to better uh, competition and servicing on the gas market to Europe. Of course. It goes without saying. So, I mean, so isn't is... that that's the big investment for uh, Europe there uh, in why deterring uh, Russia from entering Ukraine is a win-win? Yes, that's true. But you can also understand that it's not an easy task, let's say, to change everything from and to skip from gas consumption into, uh, I don't know, renewable or whatever kind of as, uh, let's say, source of energy could be invented. So even Denmark tries slowly, let's say, to to stop uh, production of gas. There are plans, you know, of the government to stop it by 2050. So still a lot of years ahead of us. And still, still right now, you're also consuming a lot of gas to, to heat your households to, for the chemical industry or, or uh, other needs. So gas is a tool of influence, and this is in the interest of both of us and also of our European partners to decrease this dependence on Russia as much as possible. Without gas and oil, I think Russia wouldn't be so successful in, uh, let's say, dem demanding sorry, from West uh, any kind of concession in terms of not uh, NATO enlargement or withdrawing troops from Romania or, or, or other countries yeah, who are becoming. So this is yeah, a big tool in their hands and I think this is yeah, one of the biggest challenge for Brussels and also for Kyiv how to increase our independence from Russian gas. And maybe also for Denmark uh, indirectly. Uh, also for Denmark. I think your government understands this quite well. Uh, even the recent uh, increase in gas prices also uh, showed that this has a negative you know, uh, implication on, first of all, on your industry. A lot of companies, unfortunately, in Ukraine are suffering right now because yeah, uh, comparing to the households, we have a special tariff set by the government so that people can still effort, let's say, pay for the, for the gas for their private use. But the companies have a market-based prices, and so they have to pay extremely high prices these days. And they are, of course, uh, suffering a lot. And some of them even uh, are openly saying to the government that uh, please do something, otherwise we will just simply close the, the business. And that's what what has a direct uh, negative implication on the situation in Ukraine. And that's actually one of the, in our assessment, one of the goals which Russia wants to achieve, to destabilize Ukraine from inside. So all these build-ups near the border just simply are for the very reason to destabilize the situation from inside, to remove President Zelensky from power or to have a pro-Russian party which could come to power and, and then suddenly say that Russia is our big friend, we should be very polite with them, Russia will offer us a very cheap price for the gas, so everybody will be happy, let's forget about Crimea, let's forget about Donetsk and Lugansk. Sometimes it happens even in, in one family, 
So uh, we, they can find a lot of explanations. So well, I'm sure the, the coming time won't uh, give anybody the opportunity to forget Ukraine. Um, and that being said, we pray for peace in Ukraine and also for better gas prices here in Denmark. I know that. Yeah. Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It was my pleasure to, to have a nice chat with you and also to enjoy good cuisine. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much. Du lyttede til Power Lunch. Mit navn er Nikolaj Bonin Rossen. Programmet var tilrettelagt af Annette Halstrøm. Tak fordi du lyttede med.